This is your Anime Degens Weekly Rundown 38. Let's get it. Welcome back, y'all. This is just uh, Dan and Tyler here. Tyler. I'm Tyler, by the way. I don't know why I said Dan first. But uh, this is Weekly Rundown 38. And today we're going to go over Undead Unluck, Episode 3, Kruin, Episode 7, Veronica Kenshin, Episode 16, Jujutsu Kaisen, Episode 13, and One Piece 1080. And um, I guess... It's also good to tell y'all that next week we're also going to have the rundown flipped. It will be on Thursday instead of the normal Tuesday because our Halloween special episode is going to come out on Halloween, which is Tuesday. So next week, expect a rundown on Thursday. So it should be a fun time still, though. Definitely, man. And Bass will finally make his long-awaited return to the podcast. He got back stateside, so he's got a little catching up to do on all the weekly rundown shows, but he'll be back next week, and I'll actually be off the rundown next week, so it's still going to be a little uh, little, little twofer for you guys. Yeah, so I guess we get right into it, right? With Undead Unluck. Let's do it. So first, we're going to talk about Undead Unlock Episode 3, How to Use My Unlock. So this episode picked up pretty much right where the last episode ended with their trip to Russia. But before that, before the intro rolled, we actually got a flashback to 1970. And it was kind of trippy. Like Andy was in an isolation bay at the Union. There was a super weird like clock hourglass thing in the background. And then there was a young girl who visits Andy and like he wrote on the wall in blood, happy birthday, Gina. So this is totally without any context. And it starts to make a little more sense when you get actually into the episode. But it was definitely a curveball off the rip. Yeah, I, I was I was just a little bit confused because, uh, you know, I wasn't sure there was a flashback right away because it just happened like all of a sudden, you know, so. Didn't um, it say like 1970 or something like right when it started? Like it said it was a flashback. I didn't catch that. So okay. like I said, it, it was right off the bat, I guess. I don't know. Um, They hit me. You, you know how I am. They hit me with this shit too early. Like it goes over my head. So <laughs> Tyler just likes to skip the first 10 seconds of every episode he ever watches. He's just looking I mean, down his phone and looks up and goes, oh, <laughs> anime. Let's go. <laughs> That's what, uh, that's what, uh, you know, a thousand and eighty episodes of One Piece will do to you. You gotta skip the first five minutes, bro. Well, that's it too. You watch a lot of shows, and the beginnings usually just recap. So, like, yeah. you don't gotta necessarily pay attention most of the time. But on this show, I guess you do. So, yeah. after the intro rolls, we get a scene with this same girl viewing Andy yacht through like a satellite image and it turns out she's actually in space standing on top of a satellite like <laughs> so i i guess she can breathe in space like i really don't know what this show man it's kind of nuts yeah well i mean i think that's due to her 
maybe to her powers, maybe? Yeah, it could be due to her powers, and we'll get into that a little bit, because her powers are pretty cool. But so after we see her taking a look, taking a little gander at the yacht through the satellite imaging, we actually go on board this beautiful ship. And Fuko, being Fuko, is just freaking out about being hunted by the Union. And then all of a sudden, like three like F-15 military jets come out of nowhere and starts just raining bullets on this thing. Like they're they're fucked in my mind, you know? But Andy being Andy, he's got tricks up his sleeve and he does a, if you guys remember last episode, he shot his fingertip and he called it a parts bullet. So he cranks it up to 11 this time and he does a parts bullet fist with a literal grenade in his hand and shoots a grenade on his arm at a military jet and takes this thing out of the sky. Like that was nuts. It was. And the thing is though, is that with this show, like for for the new people that's watching this, I hope you don't like uh, take this show too serious because this shit couldn't happen in real life. There's no way that he could shoot his hand with a grenade and match like the speed of uh you know a fighter jet like that. You know, there's just no way of hit doing that at all. That's a damn good shot, man. That's yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's like that's like trying to hit a. 400 meter snipe in Call of Duty. You gotta, you gotta get that trajectory down. Yeah, on like a cheetah going full speed, you know. <laughs> <laughs> or Sonic, even Sonic, did probably be yeah. a better reference. Uh, trying to shoot Sonic at 400 meters or miles or something. Yeah. So. so after that, you know, they continue talking about who their target is, who they gotta take down, and and Fuko's like, "Do you think it's those jets?" And he's like, "Nah, we're looking for somebody with an emblem on them." And Andy kind of goes into his history with the Union, and he talks about three people he knows that are on this elite squad of the Union. One is Unbreakable, and that's where Andy got his katana from, so that thing, I guess, isn't going to break based on the guy's name. Uh, The engineer who experimented on him 50 years ago in the Union lab, and then the young girl who caught him in the past, which is actually the same young girl he wished happy birthday, Gina, and it turns out she can make invisible barriers. So like Tyler was saying, maybe she put a barrier around her head so she could breathe. Like, I don't know, maybe she made like an invisible space suit. Yeah, because we can't see the barrier. You know, uh, you would think that you'd be able to see it like a wall, but it's yeah, obviously invisible. So, yeah. And that same girl, Gina, caught Andy in one of those silver balls that they had in the very first episode so he definitely has a weakness here, and that kind of gets Fuko a little worried. Um, she's, you know, this girl's caught him before, so who says she's not going to do that now? And that leads to Andy saying, but we have a trump card. We have your unlock ability. And we just got to figure out the rules. And it gets a little pervy, as it should with, with our boy Andy here. <laughs> and she's <laughs> like, you're just being a perv. And he's like, yep, I sure am. But for good reasons, I guess you can say. Yeah, man, if it's save their life, you know, give them a little, little, little feel or something, you know? <laughs> That's funny. Definitely, man. This show's a riot. And so it turns out that, like we said, that same girl from the past is hunting them now. And she uses like some satellite based, like giant weapon to actually blow up the yacht. And. Fuko gets trapped under the wreckage. She's knocked out cold. 
And Andy, you know, swims down to save her and he uses his limb propulsion to literally just boost this yacht wreckage up long enough for him to go in there and save her. And, you know, Andy being Andy, he's got to save her life. She's she's out cold. So he does CPR. So he's making some skin to skin contact, some mouth to mouth contact. And he actually allows them to get caught because he's like, this is the perfect chance for us to test a little aggressive unluck action. Yeah, so I also got a theory, though. You know, so with with her unluck, did you notice how delayed it was between the CPR and and it actually striking? Did, yeah. So... My theory is, is that if she doesn't know about, you know, somebody touching her, then it doesn't happen. It, the unluck only happened once she found out that he did touch her. Yeah, it could be that or she could have to be conscious. Because, like, he did it when she was knocked out. And then, like, once she was up and at it, you know, there wasn't, like, a crazy long time lapse. Like, it was pretty normal to what we saw in the last episodes with the lightning and all that kind of stuff. Uh, Yeah, it could be. But I I really do think that, that this will come up again. And I think that, you know, she it had to delay or whatever because of... Cause I don't know. It, we we need to find more about it. We need to find more info about it and see what's going on. It would be really cool if this is the case and they could actually time it out or whatever, kind of. So Definitely. And so her unluck hits, right? And all of a sudden, an underwater volcano hits this yacht and they blast in the air, land on a fighter jet, and Andy might use the most badass attack we've seen in this show yet. It's called Crimson Crescent Moon. And he looked straight out of Aroni Kenshin. Like it was like <laughs> it was badass. It was an awesome sword technique. And it was so clean the way they animated it, too. You know, thank God we're watching Aroni Kenshin, too, because, you know, he actually like used uh, something Aroni Kenshin taught us about, you know, the blade coming out of the the. Uh, the scabbard or whatever and making it faster. He just used his arm as a scabbard, basically. And that was super cool. But it's crazy that this dude could still feel pain and he still does this shit to himself all the time. Yeah, it's nuts, man. Like, the fact that... He, like, that's gotta be excruciating, but he's just so used to it at this point. And yes. so he... they He kills the fighter jet pilot and somehow leaves the cockpit, like, intact. Like, just a small, like, cut in it. And they take over this jet plane again, this fighter jet. And all you hear Andy say is, Vodka, here I come. And I'm like, this is my fucking boy, dude. <laughs> was it? So they take over this plane and they're flying towards Russia. And all of a sudden, the plane starts self-destructing because the Union figured out they hijacked it. And they escape. Andy uses this like five point landing technique i believe he called it and a five-point landing and he breaks his feet his legs his ass and his spine back to back to back to back to basically land from like a million feet in the air and throws fuko in the middle of it and catches her it was clean dude yeah but that's not supposed to happen by the way he's not supposed to break his shit like that by the way 
Hey man, he's undead. He can do whatever he wants. <laughs> it's just it's just lucky that he is undead. So definitely. So conveniently, they actually land in Baizal Lake. Their their goal. So they made it there, and it's actually Fuko's first time like out of Japan. So it's their first time overseas. So they talked about that a little bit. Um, they get to this beach and Andy's like, hey, I got to get my war buddies. We got to split up here. Go relax on the beach. Have some fun. And Fuku's just paranoid like the entire time. It was so funny. Like two guys walk up and start chit chatting her up, you know, and she just <laughs> panics and runs away. <laughs> I mean, that, that's her. That's her go to, you know, that's her defense mechanism. So definitely, definitely. I mean, she's a riot, dude. This this the cast of the show is just so funny. But so after that, Fuko actually meets Gina on the beach and she doesn't know that this is the union member at the time. And she's painting a really beautiful picture of this like nice scenery. And she's like, oh, do you want to paint? And just pulls out another freaking canvas and like stand and everything out of the blue. Like, I don't, I don't know where she pulled it from. Like, she's got pockets for days or something. I mean, this thing is the size of them. And yeah. does she... Do you think that she's got like um halfway teleportation kind of shit, like summoning shit or something? No, I mean, so here's the weird thing, and we'll get into it later. There's one point where she like has them teleport her hat to her. So maybe they did it like that. I don't know. It was it was yeah. definitely kind of like surreal seeing it happen, you know? But so they get painting and they start talking and they have a discussion about change. And the girl from the Union, Gina, says she doesn't like change. And that's why she likes painting so much. It's because even though the world is changing every second, she can capture a moment, and that moment will never change through art. So I thought that was really cool. Yeah. And then Fuko shows Gina her painting, and she added stars to it, and there was not a single star in the sky. And I thought it was interesting. And she was like, it's because the moon can get lonely up there by itself. So she added stars. So it had some friends in the sky. And then Fuko finally answers the girl's question about change. And she's talked about how all this crazy shit has happened. But Andy has helped her change. And that's why she was actually able to talk to Gina and paint today. So I thought that was really cool. Yeah. And, uh, you know, honestly, like Gina acted like she had never seen stars before. So it makes me wonder, like, how long has she been like held captive, honestly, or not held captive, but how long has she stayed in the union base or whatever? So, yeah, I mean, she looks like she's like 15 years old, but she's been at it for 50 years based on that flashback, you know, so that's kind of crazy. Yeah. But so during this whole conversation, Gina eventually rec reveals that she's a member of the union and she walks out in the lake and all of a sudden, like a platform of water starts rising out of the lake with her on it and it's one of her barriers but it's huge and andy comes in to save the day and just er, goes right after gina just attacks her real good and gina blocks again we saw crimson crescent moon a second time and she blocked with the barriers so these barriers are fucking legit mm -hmm. and she starts talking about andy and calls him daddy dearest <laughs> he's like this is the only man i've ever loved and i'm like this is getting weird guys yeah consider especially considering when we saw the flashback you know andy was an older gentleman i guess at the time you would still say and this was a little girl 
So I wonder if like, you know, I don't know. I, I just wonder how time works with the un un stuff. So yeah, I'm really curious on that. And maybe like the union is in its own little dimension or something, and time's different there. I mean, maybe that's what that hourglass clock thing at the beginning signified. You know, I'm not sure. Yeah. Because Andy doesn't look like he's fucking 200 years old. I don't know how old he is, but he doesn't look like he's 200. He looks like he's like in his 50s. Yeah, I mean, none of them really look too old. Like even even Gina, like we've seen her as a younger kid. And now we see her as like a maybe a young adult, like a high teen, low 20 type deal. She and, looks the exact same age. Yeah, she hasn't yeah. changed at all, you know, so it's interesting. I'm curious to see how it all works out. But so they're going at it. They're fighting and. Gina requests her beret and this thing just teleports in out of nowhere and she starts making more barriers that look like stairs and the water's like cascading down them and I thought this scene was really pretty. It was. It was but you know <laughs> the, the uh, factory worker in me uh, it screamed uh, you know OSHA all over it. <laughs> I was like damn she's gonna slip down these damn steps. <laughs> she's got them no slip shoes on dude. Don't worry. Uh, it doesn't matter, bro. Not on, not on that. Uh, I, I'm assuming it's kind of like, like high, like strength glass. Can you imagine walking on glass with water on it? Hey, man, if it's your own power, you got to get pretty used to it after a while, you know. I guess maybe she can like skate on it and shit too. It'd be fun. But as she's coming down the stairs, she said that the boss briefed her on the the situation. She knows Andy and Fuko are trying to kill her so they can both join the union and get in because they got to take two out. And that's when the episode ends. So like it was a really touching episode in parts. Like we learned a little bit more about Fuko and the changes she's made. And I think we're going to get a really good fight next episode. So I'm excited. Yeah. And it's also worth noting that um, in the story, uh, Andy said that this is, you know, his most like troublesome matchup. So it's fun that we got this matchup so early because we get to see him actually, I guess, struggle. But at least he's got a new helper with him. He's got, you know, the unluck ability. So definitely awesome. Well, you want to get on to free run? Yeah, let's do uh, let's get on to free run. Episode seven called Like a Fairy Tale. Basically, the group of free run, Fern and Stark run into obstacles, festivals and demons as they continue their journey north. Um. So this episode kind of starts off with a with a flashback of Freeran obtaining a book of Flamy, which is her uh, sensei, I guess you can say, Shisho. Uh, yeah, from defeating a monster and her talking about how a real one has never been found. But it almost makes you wonder, like, we've seen this multiple times, but why does she keep accepting them as payments if she knows that they're fake, you know? I yeah, I think it's she just wants to keep doing good deeds for people and helping people out. You know, I think it's like it's a good excuse for her to do the job because maybe it's going to be real, even though we know it's not. But yeah. I think it's just her trying to be a good elf because she's not a person, I guess, you know. Yeah, we I mean, we know she finally found one, though. Uh, well, uh, Eisen found one. So mm -hmm. for her. So I guess it paid off in the end. But um Definitely. But then we come back to the present with Fern and Stark basically giving fear and positive reinforcement for waking up early. It's like a dog, bro. It's like, come on, hurry, hurry, hurry. We got to, we got to, you know, make her, make her, you know, happy because she done a good job. 
Dude, it literally reminded me of like potty training my dogs and like the minute you get them outside and they pee you praise them and give them treats like it was basically the same thing and yeah i'm just glad to see that uh that stark is you know in with the shenanigans already kind of questioned a little bit but he gave in so you know he has to fern's gonna beat his ass if he don't so it's kind of scary yeah it's stern <laughs> but uh then they move on um they they start going to the next town. Obviously, they're heading north, and they come across the landslide, which they help to clear, and uh, uh, for an old man too. And they was like, Stark. Stark was kind of curious. He was like, "Why not just, you know, move the cart over the landslide, and then we just go over too? That's the easiest way, you know." And then uh, Freeman's just like, "Well, Fern." you know, kind of looks down on that. She wants to make sure it's good for everyone else after us. So, uh, definitely. Yeah. I kind of liked how Stark was a little selfish, kind of like for you. And she's just looking for the easy way out. She doesn't want to do all this shit, but you know, it's good that they helped out and cleared this road. So other people can actually pass through it. It's funny that, uh, Fern, who is the, like, I guess, disciple or apprentice or whatever being raised, by the you know uh drunk i guess hey, is man. the one that actually has the more you know helping others kind of personality so yeah you know i mean it's the it's the human inside of her and it's like you're starting to see freerin have more of that human side to her you know through all through all these adventures and helping people things like that but you know hider Hyder gave up the booze for Fern, so give him some credit, okay? Yeah, I don't know if it was for Fern or not, but it was it was something. He he did he did a good job. He did a good job raising her, so uh but uh getting back to like the old man and the car and stuff, he actually brought up a good point. Um he said he told Fern that they'd never seen an elf in his lifetime and he looks to be like fifty some years old. And Fern also admits that she's never seen one either. Um, and she's been with Freerun for years now. Uh, you know, and then Freerun goes on to say that she's only seen her kind a handful of times. And the last time she actually met one was over 400 years ago. And, you know, for one thing, there's a couple of things about this. One thing, we finally noticed she's over 400 years old. I did not expect that. I did based on how tall that tree was over her old master's house. And she would look the exact same at that point. So like she wasn't a kid, but that tree had to be growing for 300 years to get that big. Dude, that was a freaking tank of a tree. Damn. Okay. So you're using like, okay, they actually did something like that. I didn't notice. Yeah. So you remember uh, when they're going to uh, Flammy or Flam, whatever her name is, her house it was under a tree because a sapling they had planted had grown so big it overtook a house. Okay. That tree was wider than a semi-truck. Like, it was huge. I didn't pay no attention, honestly. Context <laughs> clues, buddy. <laughs> Write them down. So I guess this show is doing a great job at giving context clues. So, um, but <laughs> I just, it just goes over my head, I guess. <laughs> um, but yeah, so the last one she met was over 400 years ago. And uh, 
you know, we also learned that the elves of this world aren't that big on like love and reproduction. And she also hinted at extinction. So it brings me to wonder, is Freeran the last elf alive? You think? I don't think she's the last elf. I think we're honestly going to meet another elf at some point in this in this show. Based on the fact that they've talked about this, it's coming, you know, like they can't just go through this and then not bring an elf in, in the future, you know? See, I took it a different way. I took it like they, they're bringing up the possibility that Freerun is the last elf. And, um, you know, it certainly seems to be kind of giving that vibe off because if because uh, an elf hasn't seen another elf in 400 plus years and nobody else has seen an elf kind of. Like that just that just doesn't bode well, I don't think, for the elf race. Yeah, I think they're just very rare. And like you said, they don't have any interest in like finding a partner and reproducing. So like it, they are eventually going to go extinct unless something changes. And who knows, maybe with free free human side, she's developing through bonds with humans. Maybe she'll meet an elf and they'll they'll hit it off, you know. Or maybe even a human. You never know. Maybe you should give like a little half elf, half human type thing. Ah, a little Lord of the Rings action. Yeah. Wouldn't that be fun? Um, But yeah, they, they basically just keep on going after that, after that little conversation. But that was a really neat conversation. And they arrive at the town that they was headed for just in time for the Liberation Festival, which is basically just a celebration of the hero party uh, defeating the demons. Um which is pretty cool. Apparently, it's like the anniversary um, coming up, like that night or something. Uh, but then we get a flashback of Himmel uh, telling the reason, telling Freeran the reason why he has so many statues of himself built was so that people wouldn't forget about him. And we also get into he also says something else. He's like, "Plus, so you won't be lonely in the future." Future. And honestly, that kind of teared me up a little bit. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it didn't tear me up. That was a really touching scene. And I also liked Himmel's sass when he was like, I'm just so damn good looking. People got to know it. <laughs> yeah, it, uh, I mean, it makes you wonder, like, did did Himmel, like, kind of have feelings for Freer and you think? No, I think it was more of a mutual respect and friendship kind of thing. I don't think it was like a love thing, you know? You think so? Yeah, I definitely think so. Mm. I I think Every, differently. It doesn't need to be a romance, but come on. It's an I think differently. Well, there's a reason why, you know, every flashback, we almost every flashback we see, it's a Freeran and Himmel mostly doing the talking together. Like, there's a lot of things that she does or tries to do because of Himmel. So it makes you wonder if, you know, she didn't have feelings for Himmel and Himmel didn't have feelings for her, but they just didn't know how to convey it because of the whole fighting the Demon King and then fearing automatically leaving on another journey once they got back, you know? Yeah, I really think it's just the bonds of friendship created over that journey. You know, I think that's a better way to write this story because Himmel's gone, so it doesn't make sense to have him be a love interest, you know, the homie's dead and he was also like a grandpa after like half an episode you know but what if you know they're going to this to uh this almost a tomato heaven we're not watching heavenly <laughs> delusions <laughs> what if they you know they're going to this heaven that way she can talk to him one more time you know so what if you know there's a way that she could 
you know, bringing back or something. That would be a interesting uh, scenario. I don't know if she would do it or not, but it would be interesting. Yeah, I don't think I don't think they can bring back the dead. Um, I don't think they're going to go that route in this. You know, I think it would just be more of a conversation about her realizing how important her friends were and conveying that to them. Because, I mean, Hyder and Himmel are there and Eisen says he's old as dirt. So he might be dead by the time they get there, too. I don't know. That'd be really sad if that's what they got there. Stark met Eisen in, you know, heaven or whatever the heck they're calling it. Yeah, I guess we'll see. Um, it's it's a really good build up, but you know, uh, so they stay for the festival, then they leave the next morning. Um, they arrive in another northern town soon after, and Freeran immediately gets tackled, um, by the guards because she was going to. She sensed a demon, and she started to attack him. She started a spell, and um, so the guards tackled her, and apparently, the demon is named Lord Lugner. And he's basically from a uh, envoy, a peace envoy, and they're walking around with the leader, Graf Granite, and uh, I guess they're in negotiations with peace or whatever, because um, you know this this has been in a a war for a little while. So, uh, but then the demon, the demon guy L- Lugner, is that the, how you say it, you think? I think it was Lugner. Yeah. Yeah. He walks over to Freeran and and he just um, he says that she has bloodlust and doesn't seem to see him as anything other than a wild beast. And she basically just says that they are just wild beasts that imitate human speech, but they cannot be communicated with. And this uh, this goes on to be like a little um, uh, point that they try to hit home. but right now, Freeran gets thrown into the dungeons, um, unfortunately, because they are trying. She tried. She did attack a peace convoy or in- envoy. So, um, but and apparently, Fern and Stark tell her that the sentence is going to be two to three years for that. And she's she's perfectly fine with it. She's like, oh, just give me some Grimrise, bro. Give me some books to read. And she wanted to know why there was a demon envoy. And uh, Fern basically tells her that Aura, the guillotine, which is one of the seven sages of destruction for the Demon King army, gained her powers back 28 years ago and has been at war with the town ever since. And basically the town was tired of fighting and wanted peace, so they agreed to talk with the demons. And then... We get into the point again where Freeran is saying that it's pointless. You know, demons can't talk things out. They only want to kill. And then that's when Freeran starts telling a story to Fern and Stark to really hit this point home. Do you have any thoughts on any of that? Yeah, I mean, I like how Freeran understands how demons operate and nobody else does. But she's experienced with it. And it's a shame that, you know, like Graf grana or whatever his name is isn't listening or like didn't even like think to ask her i mean i don't know there's statues of this chick everywhere like you gotta recognize her a little bit you know it's funny that nobody does though i mean like this is one of the hero party's members and she looks exactly the same it's been like 80 years and there's all these statues of her freaking everywhere but nobody recognizes her yeah it's actually wild i think only a couple of people actually like even remotely said anything about it maybe it's because 
everybody notices him or more, you know, maybe. Yeah, I can definitely so. think that. But like I said, there's freaking statues over everywhere. But <laughs> so after that, Freerun starts telling Fern and Stark a story uh, from the past. And the heroes confront a demon girl that killed a village, a, a girl in a village. And it turns out that through communication, by basically talking, she made them feel bad. And she was like, mom. And the village chief felt bad, took her in. And was like, we can, you know, we can figure out a way to like salvage her, you know, make her feel. And, you know, Himmel is ready to kill her. And he takes his sword down. And Freerun basically tells Himmel that he's going to be sorry. He's going to regret this because he didn't kill her when he had the opportunity. And this demon child actually ends up killing the chief, burning his farm down, and is trying to take the daughter away so that she can give it back as like a peace offering. And she doesn't understand that she what she did was wrong because humans are just fodder for demons. You know, that's food. Yeah. And Himmel, just like a badass, just slices off her arm, saves the girl, and they kill the demon. And as the demon's dying, Freerun just looks her dead in the eyes, cold stone killer style. <laughs> and he goes, why, why, why do you sh- say mom? And this is kind of going to come back into it in the future. Like, we're going to lo- learn a little bit more about demons, but it was really good pre- preface for what's going to happen. So demons don't have family. They went into this whole thing. And she answers back saying, it stops people from killing me because they feel bad. Yeah, when you... Because she she constantly kept on saying, "Mom, it hurts." Ow, mom, mom, make it stop. Stuff like that. So it's definitely, um, I, I you know, it is really sad to see something like that. But you know, once you see from Freeran's point of view, you understand that they're only saying that to stop people from killing them and to free up time, basically. Um, but then, uh, you know, it comes back to the present time. And Freerun is just uh, reemphasizing to Fern and Stark that words are just a way for demons to deceive and manipulate humans. And that's it. And, you know, after seeing Freerun's point of view, do you think that any demon is capable of peace like that? Nah, man. They're a bunch of snakes. <laughs> they are, bro. Well, they're demons. I mean, yeah. that's what they do. They want to eat people. They want to kill people. Like, I mean what demons do you know like we know demons like they've been around for a long time they suck and uh another thing that's pretty interesting that happened in this episode apparently flame which is you know freeran shisho is her master um is the one who started calling monsters capable of speech demons that's a pretty fun fact huh yeah yeah it's great world building you know it's we're getting to know her her teacher through stories even though we're not going to meet her until probably the very end of the show, you know? You think we will meet her? I think that's the goal, right? Uh, maybe, maybe. We'll the see. whole reason she's going to heaven is to talk to her old teach. No, it was to talk to Himmel. Yeah, but they're going to talk to the teach too. She'll show up. <laughs> it would be, that. that's going to be a fun time. It probably won't happen anytime soon, though. But, uh, but basically while we're talking, uh, while they was talking, um, amongst themselves we find out the demons actually confirm Freerun's beliefs um they they was wanting to basically um just manipulate and kill and lower the defenses in order to get aura 
you know, in and just kill everyone else. So basically that's all they was trying to do. Um, but they meet Graf in his office. Uh, they go and have a meeting with Graf in his office where he says that his son was killed by Aura 10 years ago. And then he attempts to avenge his son. So now we get into the fact that we all thought that it was actually a peace, you know, party, but the chief actually wanted to avenge his son and he didn't care nothing about peace. Definitely, that was yeah. a pretty interesting uh, twist. Yeah, I kind of saw it coming from the point when he said he hated his guts, but, you know, he has to respect him in this time. So I kind of saw that coming. And I do want to point out, too, it wasn't his office. It was actually his son's bedroom that had been kept meticulously maintained in the same way it looked 10 years ago. And his son's sword was resting on a dresser. And he goes to avenge him. And the demon kind of like you see his eyes kind of flick around and look around the room and he understands the situation and talks about how Graf killed his father. 10 years ago as well and you know they need to get past this so there's more no more pointless bloodshed and that causes graph to lower his sword and after that you know the demons get led to a room a guest bedroom i think they called it and they're having a conversation and they're like what's a father and he's like i don't fucking know (laughs) (laughs) and here we are back to what freeran said in her little story to fern and stark so they just saying shit so Definitely. So, so fucked up, man. Demons, the demons suck in this show. Like, there's cool demons out there. You Hakusho's got cool demons, but these guys suck. <laughs> uh, but then we get into, you know, one of my favorite parts of the show, this episode, honestly. And apparently, uh, while all this was like, as they was going back to uh, their bedroom or whatever, one of the demons um, sneak off. And apparently, they go to kill Freerun. Because um, she's the one that's standing in their way, basically, is what they is what they're being told. And he kills the guard that's guarding the cells, and then he goes in with Freeran and tells her that he's one of Ara the Guillotine's executioners, and that he's actually here to kill her. And my girl Freeran, she just doesn't give a shit. She, you know, just sits there and she's like, you know, okay. Are you are you done just playing pretend? <laughs> are you are you actually gonna do what you're here to do anyways? I thought it was pretty fun. Uh, yeah, and I really enjoyed this scene too because she just looks at him. She's like, "I'm strong." And he's like, "You think you're stronger than me?" And she's like, "Bro, I'm stronger than your your leader, Aura. I'm coming at you." But like my thing with this right is so Freerun doesn't have her staff. So I don't know if she can just pull that out of her pocket, like out of nowhere with magic or if it's like somewhere else, you know, because I know she had it in her hands when she got tackled. And I thought it was on the ground when she got taken away. So, like, I don't know if she just magically pull that out of her ass or what, but. I don't know. Uh, I mean, you would think that maybe Fern and them would have it, maybe unless she, of course, did some kind of uh, shit uh, stash it away somewhere. I don't know. Actually, now that I think about it, every time we've seen them pull out their staffs, they just magically make that thing appear. So she's probably got it in her back pocket. Yeah. But like, I'm curious if they can use magic if they don't have their staff out because we haven't seen that yet, you know? Yeah, I'm curious too. Uh, I mean, I guess we'll see because I'm assuming, I'm assuming this dude's going to be light work, um, basically. And it's going to be interesting to see if like the power scales down if she doesn't have her staff. Or if she if she can't use any magic at all, but she seems pretty confident. 
So, um, you know, you think that she wouldn't be that confident unless she was able to use magic to some extent because she's not going to be able to fight. So, yeah. But well, awesome. You want to get on to our next show? Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. So next we got Roni Kenshin episode sixteen, the ideal man. So like last episode, we saw Rajuta declares Kenshin his enemy, and Yusuro challenges Yahiko. Who will be the winner? So the episode started off with a little recap and it was a little longer than any recap we've seen in the past. Like this show normally doesn't do like the classic like early 2000s like full two minute recap, but they pulled it off here. So I didn't really think it was that big of a deal. Um, I kind of liked it because it just brought back the tension of that scene and it led really well into what happened after, you know. It did. It kind of confused me though. I was like, did we just see this? You know, uh, so... Hey man, you watch One Piece. You're used to a six minute recap every episode. Yeah, I was I was wanting to skip it, but I was afraid to, bro. <laughs> and well, the funny thing is, is it's a good thing I didn't because they literally went from recap to things that we didn't see, and then they went straight to the OP. So it's a good thing yeah. I didn't. So they were fighting, and uh, Rajuta went after Kenshin, and Kenshin actually cut his sword in half. With his reverse blade sword, so that's pretty fucking ballin'. And Rajuta noticed he's like a reverse blade sword. And after that, you know, he didn't have a sword, so he basically walked away from the scene. He's like, "But I'm gonna crush you eventually, since you're my enemy. We're gonna get after it." <laughs> yeah, have no fear. I will be back, basically. But you beat me now is basically what he said. <laughs> yeah. So um, the gang comes out of the bush they were hiding behind, basically, and they're like, oh, time to go home. Let's go home. You know, let's get out of here. And then all of a sudden, they f- remember that they have Utero tied up in front of a tree. <laughs> <laughs> so they're nice enough to untie him, and he starts talking shit again. This kid's a little dirtbag, dude. And oh, yeah. Yahiko tells him, he's like, if you got the energy to come, come to the dojo, fight me alone, and we'll see what's up, you know? Like, we'll see if you got moves or not. (laughs) And so Yutaro shows up, butt crack at dawn. Like, everybody's asleep. The sun is just coming up. It's, like, very dark out still. And he's like, I'm here to challenge you, Yahiko. And they're like, bro, do you know what time it is? And he's like, well, you never (laughs) gave me a time. I'm like, you should have came after a cup of coffee, dude. Like, come on, man. I was so hot for this too. You know, I I think I talked about it for a little while last episode how how hot it would be to see Utero and Yahiko actually go at it and we finally getting it. Yeah, and we don't get shit because it turns <laughs> out that Utero has no training in swordsmanship. Homie doesn't even know how to hold a sword. He's holding it basically like completely incorrect. His hands are backwards. He doesn't have the bottom of the hilt in his hand at all. He has no idea what he's doing. And Yahiko's just like, are you fucking serious, dude? <laughs> you gonna beat who? You've been talking you shit like that? Damn, like, sock or something. You, 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 like, you don't even know what you're doing. You've been talking shit like that, dude. <laughs> and it turns out that he, his excuse is that Rajuta doesn't have time to train him. So Kaoru, being the good person she is, she's like, I'll train you for a day since you're here. And we want to, we also like, so they start training and we learn that Yutaro wants to become an invincible swordsman like Rajuta and put his father to shame. 
he doesn't like his dad right now because his dad became a merchant and gave up on being a samurai. And after that, you know, Kaoru again says, like, come train with us for a while. Yeah, come come learn, you know, come come, you know, put all this, you know, petty shit aside and actually learn how to fight, you know. So I, I really enjoyed uh Kaoru actually stepping up and offering something like that. A lot of people wouldn't, especially since, you know, Kenshin and him has different views and all, all that good stuff, bad blood between each other. That's a really uh really good move, you know. So yeah, definitely. And Yahiko doesn't really understand why they're trying to help you throw learn swordsmanship. But through the training, you know, it seems like they're starting to get along a little bit. I mean, boys, boys be boys. They're fighting this whole time. They're they're both thick-headed as hell. And Yusuro is just making a lot of progress in a short time on how to be a swordsman. So they go to the classic hot pot restaurant. We're back. The only and one in town, by the way. Only, I'm pretty sure it's the only restaurant in all of Tokyo <laughs> at this point. <laughs> <laughs> and Yahiko's working and Yutro gives him some sass like hello server can I get another serving and Yahiko just comes back like no fucking rice for you bro <laughs> <laughs> I really enjoy this uh, restaurant scene uh, cause you know uh, actually Yutro like tries to riz up uh, Yahiko's girl Subame and that was a, that was a fun scene <laughs> dude he had some moves man he came out classy yeah i mean but it was all because of yaiko he he's over there you know letting letting utero get to him get to his head and he was taking it out on the girl and and he was like oh coming all classy with the riz it was it was a spectacular size so and, and i just loved how calorie just comes in like look how nice of a boy utero is <laughs> and yaiko's just fuming over there <laughs> it sounds like something my friends would do to me, you know, just just make me feel just, you know, go against me any way they can. So That's, boys be boys, dude. That's yeah. what they do. <laughs> and then after all this, Kaoru asks Yutaro to become a member of the Kamiyakashin Dojo and train with Yahiko. And they'll be rivals and they can both work hard to become great swordsmen. And Yushiro declines. He says he only wants to get stronger under Raijuta. And we learned that Raijuta actually has a little bit of a good side, we think. And again, they talk about how he stopped bandits from killing Yushiro and his dad. Homie came in with that big stick, knocked a shit ton of bandits out at once. And, you know, it was, it was pretty cool to see that. So it's good to see that, you know, I mean, he might be just manipulating them. I don't know. We do know, but <laughs> we shall find out in the next couple minutes. So, <laughs> yeah. So after that, Yutro declines, like we said, and he asks Kenshin to fight Rajuta fair and square, like a real man, like a man's man. Yeah, the ideal man, some might say. And this this scene isn't happening at the restaurant; it's happening outside, like some little statue thing. We forgot to mention that, and out of nowhere. Raijuta comes in with that big slash, his secret technique, and attacks Kenshin. Um, so they start fighting, and Raijuta's using some pretty dirty techniques. Like, he's kicking up dirt to try and blind Kenshin in the situation so he can come through with his god-tier swing of a sword. 
And we get some like talk with Sano, like that's not going to work, man. It's just like me and my big blade. Like it ain't going to work against Kenshin. <laughs> I love the background chatting, the background shit talking by Sano and almost every fight that we see. Definitely. I, I do. I love it too. And Rajuta realizes he can't beat Kenshin with just his technique he's been using. So he pulls out his ace up the sleeve. The Tony Izuna, which is like some crazy ass multi slash attack that sends like air blades. Like it's like air slash out of Pokemon. But it's not just like one slash, it's like a fury of them. Like there's a bunch of them. And he hits Kenshin in the shoulder. Kenshin dodges, but this attack hits Yutaro. And Yahiko comes out of nowhere like, how can you slash your student like that? And we learn that Rajuta is a scumbag like we all thought. And he basically comes out like, I only kept Yutaro around so his father would keep financing my endeavors. Like, that kid is weak. He has no, like, it, would, it wouldn't be right for me to teach him the ways of my sword style. So we learned that Raijuta was never going to actually train Yutaro. And I don't know if Yutaro could hear this or not, but that had to hurt. Yeah, I mean, I, he was in a lot of pain at the time, so I don't know if he did or not. But, um, I mean, to be fair, though, like, he made, like, hella progress in the, you know, with Kairu. So, um, you know, I think that uh, he is wrong. I think that he's actually... Has what it takes to be strong, you know what I mean? Definitely, yeah. He just needs proper training. And we also learned that the robbery that Raijuta saved them through from was actually staged so he can get on the merchant, his Utero's father's good side. So this dude's a scumbag. 100% a scumbag. That that surprised me too. I was I didn't expect that, but then once we seen his true side, you know, surprise attacks and you know, throwing dirt in his eyes and then, you know, the way he treated Utero, who has been basically his little chore boy for a long time. Nothing surprised me at this point, so. Definitely. And Kenshin basically says, wait here, I need to take Utero to a doctor. And you just see Sanosuke back there like, you don't fucked up, buddy. You just pissed <laughs> off the scariest man in the world. So I think we're going to get a lot of boxing next episode. I'm on the contrary. I, I don't think we're going to get a lot of boxing. <laughs> we're going to get a beat down. I, I think that kids is going to come in uh, really hot and heavy because, you know, not only did uh, uh, Utero get hurt, you know, the doctor tells them that he won't never be able to be a samurai because his nerves and tendons got sever severed as well. So he's now, his dreams are gone, you know. I guess he's going to be a merchant kid. I don't know. The wrath of Kenshin coming in hot, dude. Yep. 100%. It's going to be a bad time for old uh, Rajuda, so. Oh, definitely, man. But yeah, I thought it was a good episode. You know, it had a lot of, a lot of tension, and I liked that. Yeah, it, uh, it, it, it had a lot of tension at the beginning and the end. You know, the middle almost seemed like a, you know, I wouldn't really say filler, but like just a, like a chill, like it was cheerful. It was about, a very different vibe than we felt yeah. through the beginning and the end of the episode, you know? So it was kind of a cool way how they put that in the middle. And I think with the pacing of the remake versus the original, I think it worked really well. Yeah. 
I enjoyed it. It was a it was a fun mix of humor with the darkness on each side. So definitely, and I feel like this show has just done a good job balancing that overall. But awesome! You want to get us into the next show? Yeah. So we're gonna talk about Jujutsu Kaisen episode thirteen called the Red Scale, and basically this whole episode was Itadori versus Chozo, and that's it. We're just gonna get a whole episode of boxing. <laughs> <laughs> boxing we got and this is going to be a really tough episode to talk about because it is literally just a fight and go watch it it was fucking awesome if you're not watching jjk i don't know what you're doing man i think i think honestly this fight was probably one of the better ones we've seen so far right of this season yeah i think like Overall, combat-wise, this might be my favorite fight of the season. Like, Gojo vs. Toji was awesome, but it wasn't like this in the sense of how much hand-to-hand combat we actually got, you know? And plus, terms of equalness, I guess, it was pretty equal, you know? So, um, you know, with Gojo, I, it's not equal, you know? Especially once he came back or whatever, so... Um, but basically... We start this episode off with Itadori running into Inamaki, which for y'all that don't know is Salmon Senpai, is who I call him. And uh, basically asking him to help with all the monsters wrecking havoc in Shibuya. And um, it was a little bit confusing for me since the last episode literally ended with Itadori running into Chozo. So, um, like, I was like, wait, what just, what just happened? You know, we got a little, you know, walk back, kind of. But it, it kind of cleared up. Um, Salmon Senpai hits him with a don't move megaphone jutsu attack, which I really loved. I love it when I see Salmon Senpai on my screen. So, um, but basically now, you know, after the, um, OP or whatever, Itadori actually runs into Chozo and we're where, where we left off at last episode and Chozo immediately goes bloodlust when he sees Itadori and he, we get into some of his powers. He's got blood manipulation convergence, which is basically he pressurizes his blood in order to uh, use it offensively. Um, you got the piercing blood. And basically, it's like when it's first shot out, the first, uh, sh- when it's first shot out, it's actually faster than the speed of sound. Um, and then he can just like swing it around like a laser. Which is pretty, uh, pretty, you know, powerful. I thought pretty interesting too. What did you think about it? I thought it was a badass technique. Um, it is very overpowered, and it definitely we find out it does have some weaknesses though. But like, it reminded me of something out of a video game, you know? Yeah, and just the the first initial shot, like you know, when it's faster than the speed of sound, that's that's very dangerous. Um. We actually seen Itadori get uh take it through his left arm immediately, um before he could dodge. That's how fast it was. Itadori couldn't even dodge it. He's like a superhuman freak. So, um, but he was able to dodge all the lasers because they are slower. Um, it seems like uh and you know he ends up hitting hitting. Chozo with a good left. So we actually know that the arm is still functional somewhat, even though it's got a huge hole in it. Um, you know, and then we get into, you know, Chozo asking Itadori, he's like, yo, did my brother say anything before they died? And Itadori's just like, no, but they was crying. 
and then Chozo just becomes unhinged. Um, I don't know if I would have told him that if I was Itadori, but I don't think Itadori is very smart when it comes to things like that. So, well, I think it's kind of a respect thing. I mean, if somebody's family died, like you should let them know their last words, or in this case, that they were crying. You know? Yeah. I I don't know, man. The dude wants to kill you, and you're just making it harder on yourself. So he's gonna try and kill him anyways. <laughs> it don't matter what he says. <laughs> But uh, basically, Chozo tries to build up another convergence, um, but Iodori reacts fast and knocks it away. So, and then they just begin a fast pace back and forth with basically Chozo just keeping Iodori on the defensive with his blood techniques. Um, I think, honestly, Iodori would already be dead at this point if it wasn't for his, like, freak athleticism. So. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the dude is a freak when it comes to how fast he can move and things like that. So that's definitely saving his ass here. And I mean, like if he wasn't in that situation, I don't think he would have been in the show period. Like, I don't think the show would exist if he didn't have that ability, you know? True. And, uh, you know, this fight is a, you know, a big reflection of Itadori and why he is what, what he's became become. So, um, but then we get back into it. Chozo finally is able to build up a convergence again because this is his main attack. And and basically, Itadori knows that he's got like a 50-50 shot of living if he dodges this just right. Um, so basically, Itadori decides to jump in the air so that he can choose, you know, when Chozo shoots at him because, you know, obviously the first shot is like speed of sound. So it's super fast and he shoots at Itadori when he touches the ground and basically Itadori manages to dodge because he knows when Chozo is going to shoot it. But it makes me wonder why didn't Chozo shoot before he landed or even when Itadori, you know, was just like running around like a madman. Do you want the answer? Why? Plot, Plot armor. Yeah. I mean... <laughs> You think that, like, a man of his caliber would be able to, you know, time a, you know, good, decent enough shot while he was in midair while he couldn't move. So, that was I mean, definitely really plot armor. You could see it from a mile away, so. Dude, shit's a laser beam. All you gotta do yeah. is shoot it under him and go, zoink, and lift it up, you know? Like, it'll go right through him. Yeah, and Itadori, what's he gonna do? He's in midair, so, like... That was pretty stupid of Itadori, in my opinion. Um, but like Dan said, plot armor, baby. Number one defensive technique in Shonen. <laughs> yeah, so Itadori evades and starts making moves and getting closer to Chojo Chozo. And Chozo actually has another move that he uses called Supernova, where small like blood bombs start exploding around him and damaging him. And while that's happening, in an attempt to keep himself, you know, he creates a blood knife and stabs Itadori in the foot so he can't move. But Itadori is able to react fast enough to not be fully immobilized. Uh, Chozo comes around, still shooting freaking blood laser beams left and right. And he actually is able to get, it's faster, so he's not as strong enough, but he does hit Itadori in the ribs with it. And after that, Mechamaru is still has that little microphone in Itadori's pocket. And he chimes in saying, hey, I have an idea. It might work. It might be able to like give like show a weakness in this. So he gives it like a 10% success rate. But hell, that's better than what Itadori's got going on right now. Yeah. 
So, Either way, he's only been on the, the defensive so far, so. Definitely. So he tells Itadori to run to a bathroom, and Shozo is, like, destroying the ceiling and the floor and all this, like, all around. But Itadori makes it to the bathroom, and Chozo figures out, he's like, he's planning something, but, you know, like, I gotta be smart here. But then Mekamaru, you know, his little microphone comes in and says, you're a coward, just like your brothers, which sets him off, and he storms <laughs> right in there. And Itadori has busted all the sprinklers, all the pipes in here, so it's raining. It is raining in this bathroom. And it turns out that Chozo's ability... Once the blood has water in it, it doesn't have enough red blood cells to actually coagulate and create these like crazy ass things. So he can't use blood on the outside of his body anymore due to this water. So we get into a fair fight now. It is mono e mono, fist to fist, and we get some serious boxing. And it turns out that Chozo can still use this ability in his body, which makes this like basically gives him like armor. Like he's just got steel hands at this point. Yeah, it's kind of like he's got like hockey, honestly, armament armament hockey, so. It was kind of like hockey. Yeah. Except we're in JJK, y'all. Not yeah. <laughs> but this fight's crazy. Like, it, it's tough to even explain it. Like, you guys just got to go check it out. It is awesome. I mean, like, Itadori's using, like, his environment around him. He's, like, throwing drains at Chozo. And they're just going at it. And... It was fucking awesome, man. Yeah, and then, you know, Itadori actually, for the first time in his fight, he actually starts gaining the upper hand. And then we find out that Chozo had been protecting a, a blood ball from Rodder this whole time and basically converging it, you know, to its maximum power. And when it reached its max power, he shot at the Itadori, hitting him in the lower chest. Um, apparently it went right through his body, piercing his liver, which is a pretty vital part, I would say. And basically Itadori, while he's, uh, you know, standing there trying to figure out what's going on, he's like, you know, I'm going to die now. Um, it's pretty clear that I'm, you know, not going to live this. He hit a pretty vital part and he's like, I understand what my job is though. I have to clear this way for the other sorcerers because, you know, I don't have to be the one who rescues Gojo. They can. I just got to make the route clear for them. Did you have any thoughts about that statement? I thought it was really good for Itadori's character. You know, it just, I think he understands the situation he's in and he knows that he's not going to be able to make a difference regardless in the condition he's in right now, you know? Yeah. And then we get into what Dan was talking about. Uh, Chozo's able to cover his uh, body parts, kind of, with the blood, making it very hard, like a defensive. Uh, he actually uses it on his arm, as we know. They begin another round with Itadori, you know, pretty banged up already. Um, the only thing keeping Itadori in this fight is basically just pure strength and athleticism. Still, even though, and just willpower, I think, at this point. Um and I think it's safe to say that Chozo is still keeping Itadori on the defensive as of right now. Um, plus, he actually hits him in the eye with some, like, I guess, blood. So he's only got one eye open now as well. So everything's going against Itadori at this time. Um, 
And then basically Chozo turns into the Wolverine. Kinda. <laughs> dude, yeah. He had claws, dude. That shit was nuts. <laughs> he makes himself blood claws in order to attack Itadori. And um Itadori kind of fakes him out with a right and hits him with a strong final left because he was like, I haven't attacked with this left hand in so long. You know, I'll be able to fake him and you know, hit him with the left. And he puts all he has into it. It's he calls it a strong final left you know, hit and, and while they're attacking, they trade and Chozo actually takes like a chunk off of his, uh, off of Itadori's right shoulder and, you know, and sends him flying into the wall and where he slumps and turns out Chozo actually used blood to strengthen his rib area, um, right before Itadori hit him and it saved his life. And, and like I said, Itadori is slumped against the wall, but he's still breathing. And Chozo walks over to him and basically just tells him, you know, when you get to the afterlife, you need to apologize to my brothers. And then we see him uh, going to strike the killing blow. And then it fades to black. <laughs> and what do we see, Dan? We see Sukuna come into focus and he's just like, Pulls out the straight Madara line. He's like, weakness disgusts me. I can't uh, believe you lost to this scrub. This clown, bro. <laughs> <laughs> but so we go back to Chozo, who apparently missed the punch he was going to finish Itadori off with. And he's like staggering on making choking noises. And one of the things they talked about is when you use this convergence inside of your body, there's a chance of thrombosis kicking in, which is essentially like your blood coagulates inside of you and you die. So I think Chozo took it a little too far trying to win this fight and basically fucked himself. Yeah, but, at the time, I actually thought it was thrombosis, but we actually learned it is something else. So Yeah, it was crazy. So like apparently his mind started getting flooded with fake memories. And like, it was like him and his brother sitting around a table in the middle of like a forest almost. And like Itadori was there, like feeding his brother, who is like that creepy looking, like demon curse looking thing. And then even like feeding spaghetti to Chozo. It was fucking weird. But like, I don't know. Like, it was just so bizarre. So I'm curious to see how and why that happened, you know? Yeah, basically they portrayed... Itadori as his brother, one of his brothers in these memories. And I guess that's why he wasn't able to land a killing blow on Itadori. Um, and then he kind of just like uh, stumbles off while holding his head and all that good stuff. And did you see like the elevator doors closing as he was walking away? Yeah. So the elevator doors are closing and I don't know if that was somebody else or if this was like a Sukuna ability because we saw Sukuna right before then. So like maybe Sukuna did this. I don't know. Cause if Sukuna's vessel dies, he's fucked. Right. Well, until yeah. somebody else eats a finger, I guess. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, I don't know who it could have like with the elevator doors closing, it makes you think that somebody else interfered and saved uh, saved Itadori. I just don't know who that would be. And then after all this happens, the end scenes, uh, you know, row the endings rose. But after the ending, they come back with more. 
And actually, two girls find Itadori and say, let's get this started. And, um, you know, they're talking about if he's alive or not. And they confirmed that he's still alive. But, like, what's what What are they doing? Like, who are they? What are they doing? They good, oh, you didn't bad? recognize them? No. Those are the two little girls that Ghetto saved from that village. Well, no, that I thought the two people that he saved was a girl and a boy. No, it was two girls. Oh, and it they was? Were, they were in, I don't remember if it was the episode before or after, and yeah. they basically were talking to uh, whoever the fuck Ghetto is now. I can't remember his name because I haven't even said it yet, but spoilers. Thanks, Internet. Um, And they talked about it, and like they're, I think they're pissed at whoever took over Ghetto's bodies, so maybe they're going to help Itadori. That's what I'm thinking. So I I thought they that might be them, but then for some reason I was thinking that one of them was actually a boy, and I and it's very easy to tell that both of them was girls. So that kind of threw me off. So no, it's definitely not a boy because we see those two girls in um yeah the uh, in JJK zero right yeah yeah, yeah so and it's those two okay so I, I mean not. I guess that's good though right that either though he gets swapped up by them because they want to kill uh mr brain man so it's in ghetto's body so yeah so i'm excited to see where that goes i mean that's a huge plot twist if they join the side of you know the sorcerers instead of the curses so i'd be interested to see that yeah i mean i think they just want revenge honestly i think they want so yeah definitely well you want to get into one in peace Let's do this. One Piece, baby. So the long-awaited episode is here. One Piece 1080, a celebration banquet, the new Yonkos. So we're learning who the new emperors of the sea are. The party rages on in the flower capital. This thing's a banger, by the way. Wano <laughs> receives the new newspaper with a couple of new bounties in a really big announcement. So the episode starts off with the Gorosai, the elders, really pissed off after seeing what was printed in the news. <laughs> and we see our boy, I can't remember his name off the top of my head, but the the bird man. Yeah, I don't know his name charge, either. He's in charge of the newspaper. I know it. I just can't think of it off the top of my head. But they were not, they didn't like the picture showing Awakened Luffy. And they were really pissed off that they didn't remove the D from his name. Because that just means the D clan is out there, baby. And the D clan is the scariest thing to the world government. And they told them that they need to cease distribution immediately. And they call some Marines. Like, there's no way we can do that, man. And we go from there to the news queues. Just dropping papers everywhere. Every single kingdom. There's one that was recently like saved by the Revolutionary Army, and they had this huge mural of Sabo on the wall. Did you see that? Morgans. Morgans. That's yeah, it. Yeah, Morgans. What, what was you saying? I was trying to figure out the name of the damn bird, bro. Oh, you're good, dude. Yeah, Morgans is the in charge of the newspaper. And there's a lot of theories about him, but that's for another episode. Um, but no, I was talking about how they showed all the kingdoms and like the you know newspapers falling. And there was one that showed a kingdom that was just saved by the Revolutionary Army. They had this oh, huge picture of Sabo on the wall. Yeah, I seen that. Uh, it was, uh, you know, it was pretty interesting to see that. Um, I wonder what that will uh, mean 
in the future. Yeah. So, and it was cool, like to kind of get a glimpse of what's kind of happening outside of Wano because we haven't seen that at all, you know. Yeah, because we've been stuck inside of Wano with no idea what the hell is going on everywhere else, unless you know you're talking about the Gorosai. So we see mm-hmm. them quite often here in the last little bit. So yeah, definitely. But we get to see some new bounties, and they talk about how Kaido and Big Mom were defeated by three up-and-coming pirates. And Luffy, Kid, and Law now all have a bounty worth three billion berries. Three billion big ones. So that's a massive increase in bounty for all of them. I mean, Luffy, like, doubled. Yeah, it was big time. They they big boys now, so... But I honestly thought we would see they would give us all the bounties um honestly but we didn't we only seen these three so yeah we'll probably get in the next episode i think we didn't get to that scene yet where like they're reading the newspaper and so kid is really pissed off right now and we don't really know why and it turns out he's pissed off about the announcement of the new yonkos (laughs) so after that we kind of like flash forward to a new scene and it shows a bunch of chefs cooking a very exquisite food for, you know, the straw hats and everyone. And they finish this food and they're all walking out very proud of what they've done. And the tables are all empty. The only one sitting there is Jim Bay. And he was <laughs> like, bro, everybody got tired of waiting. So they all went down to the party. They all went down to the festival. Like, I'm going to eat the food. Thank you so much. But Jim Bay is kind of a chill ass. Yeah, he's a patient man, bro. He's the, he's the, you know, he's the wise one of the group. So definitely. So we go on to the festival and we see Chopper, Luffy, and Yamato visiting food stalls, eating candy apples, playing some games like there's target shooting. And Luffy, being a dumbass that he is, instead of like aiming <laughs> and pulling a trigger, he just uses a gum gum move and just punches the gun at a bottle to win a prize. <laughs> <laughs> I loved it. I loved I loved this shit, honestly. It was so good to get back to kind of some of this stuff after how tense it's been, you know? And Brooke and Hiyori are doing a banger collab. Brooke's up there playing his electric guitar, and they're going to play Moon Princess, which was Odin's favorite song. So I wish we got to hear that. I really wish they did. That would have been some awesome little filler content. Yeah, especially, you know, Soaking. You know, he actually plays a mean guitar, bro damn good guitarist i mean he's a musician you know so from there we go to robin finding the poneglyph of wano and tengen walks in and we learn that tengen was actually a prisoner in that room for 20 years and not only is a swordsmith that's just a hobby of his but he's actually sukiyaki kozuki the former shogun of wano odin's father and Rochi and Kaido basically locked him in that room and he has this really weird little doll collection and Robin ain't impressed with it, which was really funny. Yeah, it was this was kind of a I think this was a big shocker for a lot of people, honestly. Uh to get to see, you know, the former shogun of Wano and uh, you know, why why he kinda hid, you know, we get into that. So Yeah, definitely. I mean he goes into it, he's so ashamed of what happened. And he doesn't want people to know who he is. He says he's not going to tell Momonosuke. He's not going to tell Hiyori because he's ashamed of everything that happens. But then Robin kind of drops the bomb and she's like, I know about Pluton and I know it's in Wano. And after a little bit of shock, you know, 
Sukiyaki does confirm that Pluto is in Wano, but we don't get into where it is. So I'm curious to see that, you know? Yeah, it kind of does the old famous, you know, cut to another scene and never touch this topic again uh, for the time being. So, <laughs> And then after that, this episode bounced. One Piece has been bouncing around like crazy lately, and it's because there's just no fights going on. So after that, we go up to the labor camp where everyone is a prisoner and the remnants of the Beast Pirates are there. So we see King, Queen, and some other Beast Pirates. And then all of a sudden, the Admiral of the Navy, Ryokuju, shows up. And the exhausted Beast Pirates have no chance fighting this guy. His Devil Fruit is freaking broken. Yeah, uh, you know, and to get in that a little bit, um, basically his arms turn into like fruits and uses them to impel people i guess is that the best way to describe it dan yeah basically so his power i'm trying to figure out i don't remember the name of his devil fruit and i don't think they've said it yet uh, but basically said it. he has the ability to use a logia user and he can turn into plants and create plants and what he does is he shoots roots from his arms and his body that can actually suck up all the nutrients out of somebody so he's just like sucking all these beast pirates dry. He's going after Queen. Queen's like, we're not going down without a fight. And Queen gets bodied, gets sucked up. And he makes a makes a comment about how he can't be a skinny man. He needs to be a big guy. And I was laughing at that a little bit. <laughs> hey, represent, bro. Represent. <laughs> <laughs> but him and King start going at it. And King, with just how wounded he is, cannot hang. And we actually see the remnants of the Beast Pirates get killed. So I thought that was pretty crazy. Like, you know, normally when we see these things, when like a leader gets defeated, you know, the other pirates are still there. And I'm curious to see what happens with Big Bomb's crew, you know? Yeah, I'm definitely, uh, definitely want to see what happens too. Because we, they wasn't there. Well, they're still back on, um, you know, the... Her island, right? Whole Cake Island. So none of them really came with. So yeah, um, it was just a few of them. There was like one. I mean, like Peril Peril Sparrow was there, and a few other people. But like, you know, um, a lot like Katakuri wasn't there. Some of the other generals weren't there. Like a lot of the family is still back on Whole Cake Island. So I'm curious to see what happens with that. Well, I feel like you know the only reason why King and them got pieced up is because you know they was just unfortunate that Ryukuji like just landed on them you know what i mean so yeah oh i mean they were so beat up from fighting this huge war we've been watching forever that they had no chance man especially with an admiral too like i mean the admirals are fucking jacked yeah they shouldn't have, they definitely shouldn't have tried to you know stand their ground they probably should have just been like okay thank you sir continue on your way sir you yeah, know they were but... gonna get boxed up though you think so yeah <laughs> and after Ryokuju actually defeated the remnants of the Beast Pirates, he uses his root arm thing to stab into a keg of what looked like wine and just chugs the whole thing. And he's like, this is some shit booze you guys got here. Which <laughs> guy's a nut, dude. And he kind of goes into what his goal here is. He, you know, he pulls out a transponder snail and tells the Marines to send one warship to Wano. And not to tell Akainu. And it turns out that he is a massive Akainu fanboy. Like, he is like a nerd when it comes to this man. Like, he worships him. 
And he just <laughs> wants to take Luffy's head to make him proud. And I'm like, fuck this guy. Yeah, definitely. We don't we don't like that kind. So get him out of here, bro. But after that, we go back to the festival and Luffy's standing on top of this massive like tower where they've got all the drummers playing. And, you know, he's like, they're like speech, speech, speech. <laughs> and he gets the party going. You know, he kind of gives a speech, but he really just like says cheers to all the people who helped make this possible. And then we get a flashback to the scene with Luffy telling Momo not to tell the people he was responsible for Kaido's defeat. Like, you're the Shogun. We can't take away from that. We need you to be strong kind of thing. And he doesn't want to be a hero. He just wants to help people, which is really good. I mean, I love that about Luffy, you know? Yeah. And what's the saying that Luffy, Luffy has always said in the past, you know, he's not a hero because heroes give, uh, give meat away or something like that. Is that right? Yeah. And, you know, he likes to eat it and not give it away or something like that. I wish that, they would have made a mention of that. So definitely. And after that, the fireworks start and everybody's having a time of life. I mean, some of the scenery they should have Wano in the sequence was really, really pretty. It was beautiful. And then kid comes out of nowhere and he's pissed off and he's going to fight Luffy. He wants to take Luffy down. And it turns out we get introduced to the new Yonkos and none other than my boy, the genius Jester himself, Buggy. <laughs> is now a Yonko. Luffy is now a Yonko, and they're still Blackbeard and Shanks. So Kid, wanting to be a Yonko, comes for Luffy's head, and Luffy just grabs him, pulls him in. It's like, we're here to party, bro. And just Kid is so pissed off the entire time. I don't know about you, but, you know, if I was Kid, I think I would rather take my chances with Buggy, honestly. Hey, man, Buggy ain't there right now, and he's hungry. <laughs> but speaking of buggy you know the luckiest man in one piece is back at it again and gets handed a yonko position gotta love it yeah we're gonna get into it and i don't know if it's next episode or it's it's down the line there's an episode that explains why and it's actually really funny how it happens so <laughs> we'll get into that but as the episode ends we see ryokuju walking towards the flower capital and as he's stepping plants are just coming up everywhere so like He's kind of helping Wano. Like, Wano is a wasteland right now from all the chemical fact, like weapons factories and chemicals and everything like that. And he's like rejuvenating it. And I don't think he knows. But like, we're seeing like random petals drop in a bud that was radiating purple from it. I really don't get that. I don't know if it's just like imagery or if it's like a hint at something to come, you know? Yeah, it, it's going to be interesting to see because, you know, as anime only, we really don't know. Uh, much about uh, Ryokuju so, and his powers. So I guess we'll see soon uh, as manga people. It's been a while since we actually seen this, so we kind of don't really know a whole lot still, I guess, Dan? <laughs> yeah, definitely. And I mean, the next episode is going to have, it's going to go into a little more, but um, be interesting to see. You know, I'm excited for that. But you got anything else for One Piece? No, our man Ryukuju is just heading towards the flower capital, so it's going to be uh, pretty, pretty, uh, I guess, interesting to watch what happens. So, coming up. Well, awesome, guys. Really appreciate you listening to this weekly rundown. Bass will be back next week, baby. Let's go. Oh, yeah.
and I've said it before, and I'm going to keep saying it until y'all go rate the podcast. You listen to it, go rate it, help us out. The ratings help us get moved up in some algorithms or some shit like that. I'm not a data guy. I don't know. But if you have any questions about the podcast, about the shows we're talking about, join the Discord. Linktree.com slash anime DGENs. You can come talk to shows we're watching weekly. You can bring up any questions you want us to talk about on the podcast. And we'll give you some answers. All right, guys. Peace. Later.